Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. We invite you to open your Bibles to the Song of Songs. If you're visiting with us this morning, that's been our summer series. We are now in chapter 6, and we'll be beginning in verse 4, and then reading all the way through verse 10 of chapter 7 this morning. So the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, it's Solomon writing, it's the bridegroom speaking first. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats, leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome, as an army with banners. And then she speaks here. Verse 11. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Then you have these others. They say, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return that we may look upon you. And then back to the bridegroom. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools and heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. 
O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And then she closes for us. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. So, let's pray. O oh Lord, do everything in our heart by the power of your Spirit that your Word intends to do. Everything that it says, let it not only seep, but stay in our hearts. Make us more like yourself in there. That more of you might come out of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've just been at the beach, and every time I go, I'm reminded of our great creator and how it follows that we too are creative beings. I see his waves, right, his stars, his canopy up there. I see his creatures, and I see his, his image bearers who in their own right exhibit a proficiency in creating fun, uh, building sandcastles perfecting foods, and in some, making a whole lot of memories. And as it is at the beach, so with so much of life, including marriage, uh, given God's sovereign hand in it all, it'll be what we make of it. And as marriage involves two people, a man and his wife, I think we can also better say that marriage will be what we have God make of us. The best marriages... Right? Marriages as lovely as marriage can be this side of the fall will be where Christ is most formed in the hearts of the married. Take, for instance, a scenario in which spouses don't immediately see eye to eye, as we saw one week ago. Right there, in the heat of spousal difference or dissonance, there is creative capacity right there. Uh, we can make things worse, or we can make things better. Uh, we can make the chasm bigger by driving the wedge further, or we can build a bridge back together by taking up the crosses that present themselves to us. Just don't think that Jesus makes no difference on which creative path you decide to take in the moment. Don't think whether you have a vital quiet time tomorrow morning or not is inconsequential to the matter. Same for prayer, same for depth of study, same for accountability, same for consistency in the life of your local church. For making the best use in a growing way of all the means that God himself has given to make you more and more like Jesus. The more Christ in you, the more Christ out of you. You will not be a worse husband, nor, for that matter, a worse wife, by having the best husband formed within your heart. So, when you think on the health of your marriage, or just the health of your own heart, is personal gospel formation paramount? Have you experienced the benefit 
of having Jesus' cross close at hand, always. Because I can assure you, nothing will prove more valuable for creating and also sustaining the kind of love that we see in the Song of Songs. So, let's come to our text and see it first in his reassurance of her that she's still the one. Picking up in verse 4. You may remember from a week ago, uh, they just had their, their first experience of that dissonance, causing a momentary but still serious sort of separation. And though she's gone to great lengths to make reconciliation with him, taking the hard road, you remember this? Taking the hard road, seeking help from others, believing the best about him, reaffirming her covenant obligations. Okay, still, she may not feel a total peace. They appear to be together again, but he hasn't yet spoken to her. Though he left the myrrh on the latch, I think, what if, what if, given time for musing now, he's gone counter? What if he's become unhappy? What if he's actually become embittered in his heart with her? What if he's lost his affections to some degree? No matter how steady his love might be towards her, I think that we can imagine the kind of wrestlings, the kind of doubts, the kind of fears and suspicions that she might have. Am I still his one and only same as ever before? It seems a little dramatic for a single bump in the road. But people are dramatic creatures and the devil majors in making mountains out of molehills. Well, our text is pleased to say uh, that the myrrh he left on the latch was an accurate symbol of the heart he has for her. There is no recrimination here. There is only reassurance. If she fears any kind of reprisal from him at all, none follows in the text. Again, as we've seen throughout, his mouth is most what? Sweet. Out of the overflow of a Christ-saturated heart, I think we can say, his mouth is constantly dripping that liquid myrrh, soaking her heart in a sacrifice of praise. Commendation. So husbands, listen. Indicative of love, this husband is not easily irritated. In season and out of season, he remains a model of of grace and gentleness and tenderness towards her. He never seems to be about getting his. He only seems to be about giving to her. She is his peculiar ministry. As God charged Adam to keep and develop the Garden of Eden, this Adam loves to keep and develop his garden, his wife. She's his garden sanctuary, a little bit of heaven on earth for him. Brothers, listen, you, you view your wife like this. It will better the way that you love her. As she's holy ground, right, you will take off your shoes so to speak, 
and show her, not least the Christ in her, a heart and a resolve and a ministry and admiration, a love that's becoming of her. Loving her will, to a great degree, define you. And having a, a, having a sincere ministry of verbal reassurance will, to a great degree, prove that. Okay? So, she speaks to her, he speaks to her, as truly and as tenderly as ever before in our passage. It's like the original mashup for Shania Twain's, You're Still the One. Okay? He says, verse 4, She's still his love. Still. She's still as beautiful as ever to him. Still as sweet a providence to him as the triumphant city of God. That's what he says. One look of her eyes still overwhelms him. Makes him weak in the knees. Makes him feel real loose like a long-necked goose. Oh, baby, that's what I like. As the old song very strangely goes. And then you'll notice in verses 5 through 7 that he repeats a good bit of what he said about her in chapter 4. He repeats it. Why does he do that? Again, reassurance. So they had a rift. Nothing at all has changed between us. Her hair is still as that moving flock of goats to him. And perhaps, as we said back then, she still smiles at that particular compliment. And guess what? When she smiles, he sees her teeth. Her complete set of minty, clean teeth are still a prize to him. Uh, her cheeks also as tasteful and lively then as ever. And see, he reassures her of the dignity. Remember, she felt she lost that. They'd stripped away her veil. Okay, the veil that was taken away has returned as if it had never been lost. To him, she is still as the holy of holies behind the veil. And then perhaps in meeting a specific concern, he gives us new material in verses 8 and 9. I think it's really, really vital that we see it. If we remember that it's Solomon writing, uh, these verses serve as a kind of notice of autobiographical repentance. Even as they serve to set her apart from all the women in the world in her greater than Solomon's heart and eyes. So, you'll see that this Solomon, the one that Solomon's writing about, the better Solomon, mentions not that he has, but only that there are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. And still, She's his dove. She's his perfect one. She's his only one. And what I want to say here is this. Brothers, if we mean to tend well to our wives, we've got to tend well to ourselves. My guess is, and what I'm about to say, we'll feel quite guilty and broken. Uh, but absolutely, it must be said. The husband here is saying, I'm not oblivious to the reality of other women in the world. Nor to the peculiar temptations a man may face and must fight all along the way in encountering them. That is, if he would be true like this to his wife. 
If you might be able to say to her with a clean conscience, you're still my one in any practically meaningful sense. Objectively, over time, in this great big wide world, there will be women possessing lovely qualities equal to or greater than your wife. Same can be said about men, and you, and me, which calls us to discern continually the one thing that sets a spouse off from any other would-be rival. You know what that is? The covenant that you made with them before your Maker and Redeemer. In a day that's almost entirely lost that notion, we absolutely cannot. There's a reason Solomon tells us in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, to rejoice, husbands, in two things. In the wife of your youth. It's really one thing, but two things there. Wife of your youth. We are going to get older. Certain beauties are going to fade. I'm not a rocked up 196 pounds anymore. Okay? I wish I was. Maybe I can get there again. We'll see. You won't always look like you did on your wedding day. Difficulty, familiarity, usage might make us feel as if this thing, this thing called marriage is all old, had, as if, as if the, the shine's worn off of it, as if the, the grass may be greener elsewhere. Solomon is saying, never let that happen. God forbid it in your heart. That she's older, and by the way, you're no spring chicken yourself, in no way negates that she is your what? Wife. That you have a covenantal obligation before your Lord and Savior to keep her, this one woman, distinct in your heart in every possible way. So, let me take us to Job 31. That's right, Job 31. In his day, Job was God-affirmed, the most righteous man in the world. And in chapter 31... Job is giving a defensive inventory of his righteousness. It is a really long list. Here's the first line. Quote, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above? and my heritage from the Almighty on high. Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity ultimately? 
Brothers, we have to understand that in coming to Jesus Christ, we've made a covenant with our eyes before the seer of our hearts. And we need to be able to set both of those things, our hearts and our eyes, on our wives only. Brothers, listen, together with our wives' prayers, attending our own prayers, let's imitate this husband by repudiating the sins of the historical Solomon. By repenting, as need be, of having a love that in contrast to the wine talked about in this song, we've allowed to grow worse with age. By locking in on the distinguishing loveliness of our wives, which this husband takes, as always, much below the surface of her skin. God help us, brothers, to let His Word standardize true beauty. Even as we look to His grace to forgive us of our sins where we have it. Now, as we'll see, that is in no way to dismiss bodily beauty. It's just to relativize it by personal beauty. That is, the beauty of one's person. And however attractive she is to him, Physically speaking, he never lets her, her person, get out of his sights. I think that's the force of what's left of verse 9, where she's said to be the only one pure to her mother. In other words, she is a godly mother's dream. In fact, implied, and yet another way, she's like Jesus. She's, she's Christ-like. All those queens, those concubines and virgins, when they see her mother, they call her mother blessed. Same thing a woman said to Jesus about his mother in Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Back then, a woman gained honor by bearing a great child. Or as one put it, quote, only a great woman could bear such a great child. Interestingly then, as you may recall, Jesus corrected that woman in the passage and told her that true blessedness had more to do with being born again than with who happened to bear you or who you happened to bear. Point being, this bride was truly blessed and a true blessing. She carried a reputation in the world like my bride, that brought her mother praise. To press it, she was much for the good of others and the glory of God. And alas, his whole world, the husband's whole world, so to speak, revolved around her. Who is this, verse 10, who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? To him, She's like those moments. You know those moments? Always bringing peace and light and joy into your life. Like each new day, she brings him new mercies. She is that signal providence that makes his world go round morning and evening as always. 
Nothing's changed. Brothers, listen, jot it down. Given the context of marital love and sincerity, one of the best words you can learn is the word still. Indeed, it's more than a word. It's a real ideal to labor after with the strength that God supplies us. As Twain put it, Shania, not Mark, you're still the one I run to. The one that I belong to. You're still the one I want for life. You're still the one that I love, the only one I dream of, the one I kiss goodnight. You're still the one. Okay. Having reassured her, we then come to verses 11 to 13. It's our interlude about her desire and then her desirability. It appears that being secured in his love, she heads down to a certain orchard. Why? Because verse 12, she has a certain desire. What is that? Well, again, it's either an occupational habit. Remember what she does for a living. She's a vine dresser, something like that. Or, more likely... It's a poetic way of saying she's readying for a season of making love with maybe a hope of fertility and a hint of conceiving a child. Remember Genesis chapter 30 and Leah and Rachel and they're bartering over the mandrakes in the marriage bed? Could be a similar thing here with the pomegranates minus the sinful rivalry, of course. But at any rate, it appears her heart is in that kind of heaven. And that as she's preparing for it, what do you know? Providence. Providence happens. And her chariot home awaits her. So there's her desire. And then there's her desirability. These holy others in the text urge her to return. Note that they may look upon her just meaning that they desire her presence. She is a desirable person in that pretty much everybody likes to be around her again, my bride. Okay? She's a blessing. Wherever she goes, people are the better for it. That cannot be said about me. But Jenny, it can be. So, while she's undoubtedly generous with her time, someone gets priority, always and especially now. And actually, it appears that he lays claim to it, doesn't he? Even made preparations for it, perhaps. Sorry, folks. I sent the chariots. <laughs> She's returning to me. Y'all don't get her right now. She's mine. And the do not disturb sign is set on the door. Now, whereas I'm not sure what to make of the dance-off between the two armies, in verse 13... <laughs> I'm more sure it's still more about her desirability. In fact, it's posed as a question to give him further opportunity to address just how desirable she is to him. So, we come to the second poem here, and resumption, seeing and savoring, S-A-Y, savoring her again. Uh, the marriage bed temporarily postponed in chapter 5 has recovered its former opportunity here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and so away we go with it. And what better way to begin 
We might say that her bedding presence is like gospel to him. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. (laughs) Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's doubtful, given what she does and the time and all this kind of stuff where you walk around the dusty roads and whatnot. I'm going to say it's doubtful that her feet were actually all that lovely. What he means, again, is that her presence, and certainly her presence for intimacy, is soulful relief to him. In a bad news world, what a woman. And what a wife. In her presence, her embrace, he's enveloped, as one put it, by a new world. A noble world. A notice of heaven in which he lives and moves and has his being. And what sights he delights to see and savor. Only whereas before he went from her head down, he now goes, what? Feet up. And adds a few new observations as he goes. He's mentioned her beautiful feet. Then, after her feet, it's onto her thighs, rounded, sparkling, perfectly sculpted, he says. And upward still, there's her navel, which seems to be intimately intoxicating to him. It's a bowl of perpetual wine. And zooming out from it, he scopes her belly, this heap of wheat is what he says, encircled with lilies. I'm going to go with prosperous and pretty He then espies her breasts, still delicate and graceful as twin fawns of a gazelle. And he'll return back there, but he doesn't stay there for now. He rises up to her neck, still strong as ever, still like a tower, here an ivory tower. And there's her eyes, those overwhelming eyes. He catches them again, and it's like diving into pools of Heshbon. They're they're an invitation to refreshment. And then to really spice it up, there's her nose. And it also is like a tower, which I'm supposing has more to do with prettiness than Pinocchio. And then alas, it all comes to a head her head. It's a crown upon her body. And as she's not aged, I don't think, her purple hair is not about its color. It's about her royalty to him. As ever before, she is still his queen. When she lets that hair down, even a king accustomed to winning wars is taken captive in its tresses. And what's more, even rightly and delightfully so, it's not against his will. It's all he wills. And so at this point, I just want us to see something here, okay? I want us to see that every inch of her, if you go through the song, every inch of her from head to toe is attractive to him as it should be. And yet, due to our culture's comfort level with functional, even shameless nudity, we might be missing something in his descriptions. 
Today, a girl shows her navel, no big deal. There's no shock value. It's normal. It's typical. Whereas here, in the Bible, this husband is saying that her uncovered navel is erotically intoxicating to him. Why is that? I mean, I I can tell you with a good amount of confidence that what men generally find attractive has not changed since the garden. So, what has changed? Simply, our notions of modesty, matrimony, sexuality, and beauty. Real beauty. And if the conversation were only about uncovered navels, again, I was just at the beach. But we know it's more than that. Don't we? We know that it's about a collision of world views. The world versus the word. Our notions of beauty versus God's. Our unwillingness ultimately to be a fool for Christ. Here's what I want you to hear though. The objective in saying that is not to tell you ladies how to dress. It's not to bind your conscience. It is to sensitize your conscience. Again, to the divine dignity, the temple quality, the figural glory, the marital treasury, the spiritual unity, the covenantal fidelity connected intrinsically to your God-given body. I'll just say that true beauty will be biblically deliberate and considerate in the exposure of one's physical beauties. Naked and unashamed is supposed to be in marriage alone. But I'm not naked, Brian. I'm just cute and trendy and cultured. Listen. I'll speak to your heart that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit now. Before you go out, do yourself a grace and ask, is this giddy-up I have on, is it honorable of what I really am? Is it honorable for my beloved, whoever that may be, in the future or right now your husband? Is it becoming of my Lord? Could I unashamedly promote the gospel in this. Does this that I'm wearing, does it look like redemption from sin? Does it look like resurrection life from spiritual death? 
That's all. If on your date, or out on Bowman, or at the beach, Jesus were to come alongside you, we know, praise God, He would be gracious. But would you be able to look Him in the face and think, this is good. And brothers, none of what I just said excuses away our lust. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Responsibility is laid upon us still to pull Joseph's where we must pull them. To flee naked if we must because she's grabbed our garment and ripped it off. Shouting as we run, how can I do this great wickedness and commit sin against my God? One thing I know, it will not do for strong men. It will not do for God's men to blame the weaker vessels, as Peter calls them, for our sins. Find a way to be obedient for the love of God. Well, surely, as Paul will say, one great help is to be out of this world in love with making real love to your spouse. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, verse 6, with all your delights. See that? And he lets her know his intentions here, doesn't he? This is different. This, this mixes it up a little bit. He likens her to a palm tree. Her breasts are like these clusters on the palm tree. A palm tree that he now intends, he says, that he's going to climb in order to lay hold of those clusters. So he wants to taste of her fruits. He wants to breathe in her apple breath. He wants to be drunk with her kisses. And in the midst of that, what a reply she gives. Verse 9. It goes down smoothly. Pay attention. For my beloved. Gliding over lips and teeth. Because they are married. And because they have made the best of it. There's no withholding now. There's no choking it down. <laughs> There's no shame at all in what's going on here. They are free before God to utterly enjoy each other like this. We might say their lovemaking is by love a well-oiled, personally engineered machine. And to it, she gives the close in verse 10. So fitting and fueling. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. It's fitting 
because it ties the text together from chapter 5, verse 2. Okay, recall, once Eden has resumed what seems to have dawned on her, fittingly then, it's restated here and not reversed back, I am my beloved's. So again, what perhaps she had forgotten and then remembered, she now reapplies in the context of the marriage bed. This garden experience. Things are as they were again. And a lesson on mutual self-sacrifice, however difficultly learned, is now enjoyably put to practice. It's fitting. It's a fitting close to the section. It's also fueling. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Her use of the word for desire there is one of only three uses in the Old Testament. The only other two are in very close proximity to one another. One is in Genesis 3.16, where because of the fall, Eve was going to be inclined to desire, same word, her husband's place, which he would be inclined to oppose rather forcibly. The other use is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where because of the fall, God says that sin's desire, same word, is the soul's domination and Cain's in particular. And God tells Cain that he must oppose it. He must oppose it rather forcibly. He must oppress it. He has to rule over it instead of the other way around. In other words, the gender wars here in a marriage meant to reflect Christ are the byproduct of sin's dominion in the soul. She is inclined to her own dominion at the expense of her husband because of sin. And he is inclined to meet that challenge forcibly also because of sin. But where sin is then defeated, it seems she will find herself submitting to a man insistent on loving her in a self-sacrificial way. Does that sound familiar? The Song of Songs is about Edenic love. It's about a marriage centered on a love where sin, though present, has lost its penalty and, praise Jesus, its power. It's about a covenant where the grace of God has righted wrong-spirited inclinations. It's about, I am my beloved's, and his desire, there's the word, is not against me. It's for me. Oh, man. Friends, she uses that word here to say what Isaac Watts says, enjoy to the world. I know it's not Christmas, but 
Maybe we should just redeem it from that captivity. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. What a thing to say in your marriage. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Here it is. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Christ comes to make His blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. And it's found in marriage. And it's found in sex and sexuality. But not terminally. Even there, even especially there, Christ makes a difference. He creates change. First in us, then in all that involves us. So, dear ones, marriages with a robust appetite for self-sacrificial love in all of its monogamous bounty and beauty sing their part in the great song of Christ's universal triumph. The displays of His grace in our marriages sermonize of the new creation where His grace is going to rule over everything. Your marriage is more than you think it is. My friend, that His grace would rule in you today. No matter how you've sinned or how much you've sinned, Jesus loves to forgive. He came into the world precisely to save sinners. Even the chief of them. To assure us of the saving love of God for us. And so I want you to see Him here climbing, not a palm tree, the tree of crucifixion. See him giving up his life on the atoning tree. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring you to the glory of God. What mercy. Man, I just implore you to take hold of it this morning, if you haven't. And beloved, being reminded of it, let me ask us, how beautiful are our feet? Are we being a gospel presence in a sin-accursed world? We are His bride, after all. Are we pure to Him who bore us? Are we as lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners? Do those around us know that we are part of the triumphant city of God? Are we spreading the good news far as the curse is found? Is it spreading in our own persons? 
Are we taking advantage of the ways God loves to form Christ in us? We must. We absolutely must. If we mean to make the most of our lives on into our marriages. The more Christ in you, the more Christ out of you, as we've seen in the song today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, again, please help our hearts in every way they must be helped. Convict, but also comfort. By your grace, help us towards godliness. A godliness that tends to the utmost of your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.